Definitively Speaking is a definitive healthcare podcast series recorded and produced in Framingham, Massachusetts. To learn more about healthcare commercial intelligence, please visit us at definitivehc.com. Hello, and welcome to the latest episode of Definitively Speaking, the podcast where we have data-driven conversations on the current state of healthcare. I'm Justin Steinman, Chief Marketing Officer at Definitive Healthcare and your host for this podcast. I'm joined today in person in the Definitive Healthcare podcast studio by my special guest, Pam Brandhawa, the founder and chief executive officer of Empirico, a biotech company focused on therapeutics for infectious diseases and home-based point-of-care devices for personalized patient treatment. Pam has more than 20 years of experience in the healthcare and life sciences industries, with expertise ranging from policy, corporate strategy, product development, analytics, and marketing for Fortune 500 companies, startups, and government. Pam's a bit of a zealot, if you will. Kids, check out that 1970s Woody Allen reference. As she has served on the board of directors of Hercules Capital, Massachusetts Life Sciences Center, and on the board of directors of the Massachusetts Biotech Council. She was a member of the World Economic Forum's Global Future Council on Biotechnology and the Boston Women's Workforce, Workforce Council. That is a lot. And now, to top all of that off, Pam has achieved her career pinnacle by becoming a guest on Definitively Speaking. Pam, thank you for joining us. Thank you. It's my pleasure to be here. <laughs> I'm just kidding. We obviously cannot compete with that illustrious group of credits, but we are thrilled to have you join us. Maybe even add a little credibility to our show here. That's very kind. So, uh, <laughs> Look, I was excited to have you on the show today because I think there's so much that we can talk about. I mean, you cut across such a wide spectrum of biopharma and biotech. So let's just get started. What areas of biotech get you excited today? You know, I am excited. I mean, there are a number of areas, but specifically, I'm excited about the convergence of technologies okay. because that's where the future is going to be. We are looking at, you know, human ideology, really human biology, very, very complex and in order to really understand fully and to, to really be able to provide solutions sort of at an individual level or subpopulation level, you really need to combine the AI, you need to combine the high-throughput genome, genomic assay, the proteomic assay, and to be able to create sort of a biological models that allows you that kind of understanding and to be able to then create you know, new diagnostic biomarkers and have the right selection of patients for a personalized or precision therapy. And I think we've made a great progress in that space, but there's a lot more to be had. So what would I do with a biological model? Help me understand that here. So, you know, bi biological models are, you know, if, if you look at diseases, mm -hmm. diseases have multiple pathways. And today the drugs are developed with a single pathway because it's very expensive mm -hmm. to target multiple pathways. Mm -hmm. If you take like immunotherapies, for example, they are highly effective, mm -hmm. but they're highly toxic if there's an off-target effect. Mm -hmm. So understanding all those different sites, different pathways, and how this whole system works, uh, and to be able to then come up with a solution really requires that kind of understanding. And those models help you with that. Got it. Got it. So What's changed over the past five, 10 years that gets you excited about this now? Because I imagine this has been an age-old problem, right? Yeah. 
Yes. Yes. I mean, in the last decade plus, I would say, or maybe almost two decades, mm -hmm. uh, the technologies have come through like high throughput genomics, mm -hmm. proteomics, metabolomics. Those technologies have, have allowed us to understand sort of at a molecular level what the changes takes place, whether they're genetically inherited or whether they are, you know, changed by the two uh, related to environment. Uh, environment can be your lifestyle, mm -hmm. uh, and 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 could be your clinical family history, and so having that you know that improvement in that technology, you know the high throughput, combined with AI, which we have seen mm -hmm. in the last decade or so, um, we've seen now really you know diagnostics, for example, that are really precise. We can you know specifically in the cancer space. We've seen technologies that can identify who are the high responders, who are the low responders, and we can tailor that accordingly. When you say high and low responder, you're talking resp someone responding to the medicine? Re responding to therapy, yes. Responding to the therapy. Yes, yes. And, and, and also early diagnosis, that, mm -hmm. that, that's the other part of it. So there has been so much of improvement that has taken place. And it's, again, you know, combination of, you know, computational models, some AI in the last decade or so, and and the high throughput, you know, these assay technologies, um, these instrumentation have such a precision and, and you know, fast, you know, we've seen the, uh, you know, you, you go to 23andMe and mm -hmm. others, you know, used to be thousands of dollars and now you can get in a few hundred dollars yeah. genetic tests. So those things have improved and changed. Got it. So just for some of our listeners out there, we have a pretty broad audience listener. What is an assay technology? As you keep talking about it here, yeah. So it, it, it's 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 a multiple different types of instruments. Mm -hmm. So can I take a biological material and really understand the different components? Mm -hmm. It could be blood, okay. it could be saliva, right? Mm -hmm. So that is what we are looking at, you know, from these different technologies. So it really feels like it's a big data problem. It's a big. It's it, everything is data. I mean, if you if you really think about it, it is all data. It's a big data. It's really, I would say, intelligence learning, and uh, it's really making those decisions based on that information. You know, we run tests, but that's really way to get data, right? And even in the drug discovery process, whether we are doing in vitro in a test tube, you know, assay, or whether we are doing animal studies, it's all about gaining that data. So the big data and intelligent data is the key. Got it. So it's a good time to be a data scientist. Absolutely. I mean, the, we have a very, very high demand. In fact, at uh, Mass Life Science Center, we, we actually created a program uh, for data scientists because we have a huge need mm -hmm. in the data scientists, you know, computational biology, you know, computational chemistry, data scientists, uh, that whole range, um, you know, is in very, very high demand. I, I would say it's one of the number one area to go into. I should go have a career conversation with my kids when I go yeah, home tonight. Yes. <laughs> That's a good idea. Yeah. That'll work for one of them, not for the other one. So we'll have a different conversation about that. <laughs> Maybe the other one can use more of the interpretation, the other logic. Exactly. <laughs> so let's kind of clarify something. I know, I know I'm guilty of it. I use the words biotech and biopharma interchangeably. And I kind of know I shouldn't be doing that. What's the difference between biotech and biopharma? Really, and like for the 
every person explanation here. Explain it to me. Well, you know, it's it, the lines are very blurry, uh-huh. you know, just to create more confusion for you. <laughs> Great. I'll add bi- pharmaceutical as a third term. <laughs> okay. <laughs> right? so, so there's a biotechnology, there's pharmaceutical, and there's biopharma. Biotechnology, you know, really based on harnessing biology, right, uh-huh. at the molecular cellular level. And uh, where pharmaceutical really is, is more making medicines, you know, from uh, chemicals or synthetic uh, materials. And biopharma is a combination of both. So they are doing the, the research R&D on, you know, harnessing biology, looking at the targets, and they are also making medicine, progressing them to clinic. Mm-hmm. So those are two combination of biopharma. And those lines are very blurry. I mm-hmm. mean, if you look at um, companies like, um, uh, you know, Genentech, um, or you look at Biogen, mm-hmm. you know, or Vertex, Right. You know, that's where they started as a small little biotech company. And, you know, they grew to, you know, this amazing right. <laughs> big companies now. So would you say someone like Moderna, how would you classify Moderna's? Which one of those three categories or all three of those categories? Well, they, they are all three now because they are manufacturing. They are they are not only passing them through clinic, but they are also manufacturing them. So they are they are um, all become more like a biopharma. So the lines are very blurry now. And do you think that that's driving this like move towards personalized care, this kind of like blurred area or this big investment in big data and biopharma biotech, are we really, you always hear about personalized care as the holy grail, right? And it's not just, you know, Justin talking to his doctor one-on-one, but more it's like it's personalized treatments, personalized medicine, personalized clinical medicine. Is that really where we're heading in this space? Yes, we we are heading in that space, but you know, the lines are blurry because not necessarily just that. Uh-huh. Lines are blurry because the technology advances have made it happen for even smaller companies to go into clinic. Mm-hmm. And, you know, whether you call them, you know, different sort of the technologies or R&D models or uh, business model or investment models, you know, that have all come together mm-hmm. uh, to make it happen where companies can actually uh, innovate and do the basic science and move it into clinic and be able to do that. Um, You know, the partnerships have become much easier. Mm -hmm. Um, I give a lot of credit to also pharma companies, you know, providing that sort of guidance and or coming in early Mm -hmm. and and sort of co-developing it. So a lot of companies get trained like that with co-development. So, um, you know, so for those reasons also, uh, smaller companies have moved into that area and started to produce medicines. So um, the lines have been blurry because of that as well. Interesting. So that actually brings up another question that I had to ask you later, but I'm going to pull it forward here, which is, you know, let's talk about the obligation of those big biopharma companies, right? Companies like Pfizer, Amgen, Moderna, Vertex, on and on and on, right? Do you feel like they have an obligation to the small startup ecosystem? Well, yes. I mean, you could say they have obligation or they have uh, a vested interest. Okay. Okay. Yep. So so these companies, uh, you know, do have that uh interest and advantage to be like sort of the first mover Mm -hmm. advantage where they can come in early and they can co-develop and they can they can ensure the success of it Mm -hmm. you know not just by making the investment available but you know big pharmaceutical companies have a lot of experience specifically moving a product through clinic and they have a heavy understanding of the regulatory process the commercialization process and so if they come in early not only they have a first pick of the advanced technologies to be able to license that early uh, or buy them right out. Uh, but also, you know, they can help the company succeed 
So it's a win-win situation when companies actually come together early. Mm-hmm. And, and that's happening already. Yeah. But it, it, it can certainly be enhanced. And I think that um, one of the things I think that, you know, more needs to happen from larger biotechs or, or, or pharmaceutical companies um, is that really investing in much earlier than they have been coming. Mm-hmm. Um, and so some of, for example, like some of the technologies that are not licensed for academia, for example, mm-hmm. you're starting from ground zero. You're starting from a concept, you know, all the way to doing the proof of concept studies and, and moving through the sort of the stages of, of the development. Um, if they come in early with ideas that actually potentially be, you know, cutting edge disruptive ideas that could have potentially many applications like platform technologies, um, they would have much more advantage over really being innovative because majority of the pipeline comes from the biotech right? or or, or, or a big amount of that comes from biotech. So let me see if I'm following you here. You're saying to me that you, do you think that big biopharma should be outsourcing a lot of their innovation and R&D to these smaller startup companies? I wouldn't call that outsourcing. Okay. I, I I would say much more is that you're scouting and you're sort of mentoring and you're guiding mm-hmm. in the direction where you need to go, mm-hmm. where you want to go. Mm-hmm. And so uh, if you come in early, you can actually motivate and you can develop the technology, co-develop the technology uh, in what how you need it. Because, you know, it's like if you already have a fully baked product or, or to some degree, it's, it's a really, uh, you know, difficult to cost more to change that. Mm-hmm. But if you're coming in early, making smaller investments, and those smaller investments is a huge help for, for early stage companies. Mm-hmm. And, and specifically the guidance and mentorship, um, that also is, is extremely helpful. Yeah, but you know it's really interesting because you know according to the the Pharmaceutical Research and Manufacturers Trade Association, it takes on average ten years for a new medicine to yes. get to market. Actually, even more. Right? Yes. I mean, that, that's an average. I was like half more, half below, and you know, and you know, clinical trials alone take six or seven years, and most small startups do not have the capital, the time, the people, the expertise. I mean, running clinical trials a big investment, right? Uh, and you know, this blew my mind when I was looking at it. You know, the average cost to research and develop a successful drug is about $2.6 billion, right? So if I am, again, one of these big biopharma companies, I think I want to place a lot of bets, right? I want to cover up my entire roulette board. It's not right? And the competition is very high. You know, everybody's mm-hmm. going into, you know, specific sort of the areas and everybody wants to get there first and everybody wants to be able to get to market first. Mm-hmm. And so it's very important. Um, I think much more needs to happen mm-hmm. that support from the big pharma to biotech. So it's a win-win situation for both sides. And, and what's the role in academia and all this? But I mean, we're sitting here in greater Boston, you know, we've got MIT, we've got Harvard, you got all these great, amazing universities. You hear about all these genius scientists cooking up stuff and spinning it out through like licensing. How does academia fit into this? Well, you know, academia plays a major role and uh, academia creates a huge, pretty sizable pipeline mm-hmm. of these innovative therapies. And a lot of times, uh, you know, technologies are licensed out uh, by a postdoc who actually helped develop the technology, which mm-hmm. is a fantastic uh, way to have that process. Um, and they, they start a company and, and, and uh, they license out, they start a company, and then they move through the stages. Um, so, but there's 
area that I think is very underutilized, mm. which is really research collaboration, for example. Mm -hmm. And the research collaboration really allows you that you have an idea and it's so basic that you need, you know, expertise and you need somebody to be able to spend that time in um, developing that or progressing that idea to like a proof of concept. And going with that idea to an academic institute and partnering with them and having a research collaboration, it's a joint IP. Mm -hmm. um, that to me, you can have so many of those that you possibly cannot have in your company. Mm -hmm. um, so I think to progress that innovation and, and drive more sort of products, um, to me, that area is heavily underutilized. And I think specifically by smaller companies because they look at it as they have an option to license the technology from academia or start from scratch. When they license the technology, there are advantages to that. Um, you know, they they get to have some data there. They have technologies built. They have a PI, principal investigator, who, okay. you know, has expertise who can, you know, guide them. Um, so there's a lot of help in that respect. And, and it's easier to raise money because you have something to show for. It becomes really challenging for a company, a biotech company, that is actually starting from scratch and building their own technology and going through these stages and trying to raise funds at the same time, it's really challenging. And I think a lot of biotech companies sort of miss out on that you have an option to do the research collaboration. And my personal experience, you know, with Empirico, we've mm -hmm. done a number of those, those uh, partnerships. We've done with Harvard, we've done MIT, MIT Lincoln Lab, we worked mm -hmm. with Northeastern, we also worked with um, um, other universities, you know, through sort of a matching grants from NSF and so. And my experience is that the universities, yeah, it's a tough process to negotiate uh, those contracts. And sometimes it takes a long time. But it really is worth it mm -hmm. because you can really, if you get the good team, you can really speed up. And the resources that you could utilize, you cannot possibly have a $100 million lab. <laughs> you cannot possibly, you know, have the institutional knowledge that you can tap into. You cannot possibly have the, even just as simple as sta sta standard operating procedures and best practices and so forth. You get that type of expertise. And your sort of your network sort of gets all like amplified. Um, that is my personal experience, you know, mm -hmm. with Empirico and, and my past life um, that I think companies really underutilize that. And that to me, you know, you can be a two people team and you can do something like that and have almost 40, 50 people equal, um, you know, sort of value. And so that's something I think should be more utilized by smaller companies as well as large companies. So how do we improve that? You keep saying it's underutilized. What can we do about it? I, I think that, you know, one of the things that uh, um, we started actually a project at MassBio okay. um, and uh, Mass Life Center is to really promote that, uh, promote that between the academia and the industry. Um, and, 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 you know, Mass Life Science Center has a little bit of uh, advantage that we can put some money behind, you know, mm -hmm. seed money to catalyze sort of the idea and do a test case. And, um, and, and so one of the greatest sort of the part of Massachusetts is that because we had the $1 billion life sciences bill and we have a Mass Life Science Center and it's a small team, 22 plus people, mm -hmm. but 
they are very, very effective in, you know, making sure that we actually identify the gaps and where the gaps are. You know, how do we start that process? And, um, you know, bringing academia to the table has been very important because uh, what we recognize is that they need to make it easier for companies. Um, it takes a long time. It could take six months to 15 months to do a deal. And if you are a startup, you're starving. You're right. You don't have money. You don't have resources and you don't have time. So there's no way you will survive with that. So the companies sort of resort to either licensing existing technology or they start, you know, doing their own thing. Mm -hmm. um, so I think they need to make easier process. They need to have less prohibitive, you know, terms and conditions. Um, they need to ensure that that it's not a long process like that. And you know, some best practices that they can share ahead of Who's time. Who's they, by the way? It's just academia. The, academia, okay. Yes, to share with, you know, sort of the industry so people know what to, you know, what to expect. So you think the burden on addressing this underutilization sits with the academia side? Uh, well, it is, it is both, but, you know, mm -hmm. academia can make a big difference uh, in terms of making it easier. Mm -hmm. You know, that process, as I explained to you, and right. that's my personal experience. Yeah. And, you know, having done it many times. And even then, uh, it's a tough process. And you're talking about hundreds and thousands of dollars, sometimes attorney fees. <laughs> you know, right. I mean, that, that, that is a reality. <laughs> right. So, and, and a lot of these, you know, these institutions probably have the lawyers on staff, they have a technology licensing office. Exactly. And they do this every day. And, you know, for the small startup, they're not doing this every day. Maybe their first time through this process. Yes. Yes. Exactly. Do you think there's a role for the government in this or the public sector? For this particular uh, yeah. area? Well, there is. You know, the government develops a lot of technologies, too. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, there is a process for that, too, to how to license those or how to co-develop. And I think that's also underutilized, specifically by smaller companies. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we are currently working on something. And, um, uh, yes, it's a little bit long process, but it's worth it. Mm -hmm. um, and so uh, government has a similar type of a role to, to – one is to make people aware what is available. And, 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 you know, those things are available. They're buried somewhere. If you don't know, you know, it's a massive, right. <laughs> there's so many different agencies and so many different areas and subsections and so forth. And it's just very hard to find. There's no easier way to find what's available and, and what can be utilized and where the potential is. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. You've got this great, interesting background. You've lived at the intersection of the public and the private sector for so long, right? You know, how do you think the public and private sector should work together to drive innovation? I mean, Massachusetts seems to be doing pretty well based on, you know, my opinion, but there are 49 other states out there that, you know, I think maybe could be doing a better job. A little bit of a home court bias here, I'll admit. How do you think public and private sector should work together to drive innovation in biopharma? You know, I want to give an example. I want to go back to the yeah. Mass Life Science Center, uh, you know, and um, uh, and I'll bring in uh, other examples. And these yeah. are just the personal examples, you know, personal Best experiences. Examples. Yeah. And so, you know, Mass Life Science Center was established in 2008. You know, the bill mm -hmm. was passed under Governor Deval Petrick. Ideas started maybe before that, mm -hmm. but he carried on and made it happen. Um, and... Uh, so there was a creation of Mass Life Science Center, and there's a you know budget. It was a billion dollars over ten years, hundred million each year. It may not sound that much, but you know when you think about technologies that are sort of um, very early stage and have a high potential, and no investor is going to fund, we were able to fund those. And 
money may not have been large, but the promotion was very big. And specifically the due diligence process that, you know, Mass Life Science Center went through with those companies really gave comfort to investors. Mm -hmm. So the follow-on money has been, you know, in hundreds of millions of dollars for these companies. And uh, so that was a success. Um, we were able to have Massachusetts at become the number one leader. You know, we have like over 2,000 mm -hmm. uh, life sciences companies in Massachusetts. Wow. That doesn't include the research institutes. And so uh, that is a big number, you know, between uh, therapeutics, diagnostics, digital health, mm -hmm. medical devices, and, uh, and tools. Um, so that bill was across two administrations, you know, Democrats and Republicans. Mm -hmm. And um, so it was, it was uh, in 2018, we went through reauthorization under Governor Baker mm -hmm. with over $600 million reauthorized for five years. So it was per year was more than the first one, and first you were, billion dollars. you were investing in these companies, right? We are investing in those companies. You're so taking there's, ownership shares as well for the state? Well, we have, uh, you know, we've done like convertible notes, for example. Okay. Um, and so we have uh, tax incentives, the three big categories. We have uh, tax incentives. We have... Uh, uh, grant making, and we have the investment fund. Um, so between those three, we have been able to provide sort of a different mechanisms for co large companies, medium-sized companies, as well as small companies. We needed to make sure that the R&D facilities are located here. So we moved so many of them from New Jersey to here because we attracted, you know, we have a, a Massachusetts very attractive, over 300 uh, colleges and universities. And then you, uh, you know, look at these major institutions and, um, you know, hospitals and um, and uh, you have a talent. Um, so it made it really like it was very strategically designed. Mm -hmm. um, so we became the number one. Um and we are the enemy, and but you know we need to keep it as right. number one, right? right? Right. So, so you asked about a role of government. That was a good example of a role of a government to really make this as, uh, you know, number one player mm -hmm. in the world, not just in the United States. Um, you know, we we lack in later stage companies, for yeah. example, you know, biomanufacturing. We kind of lose that to North Carolina or. Maryland or, you know, mm -hmm. um, sometimes even California. So, uh, you know, that's sort of one area that we need to ensure we, we do great job in, in innovating and early state. We need to do equally good job in, you know, having the workforce, for example, for uh, regulatory expertise in regulatories, mm -hmm. um, clinical develop, clinical research, like clinical trials, manufacturing, commercialization. We do more and more of that. And state recognizes that. So through Mass Life Science Center, Mass Bio Nonprofit as an industry association, and the industry working all collaboratively. One, we have 40,000 jobs that we need to fill in the next three years. Wow. And two is that we want to make sure that these clinical stage companies or later stage growth stage companies we keep them here in Massachusetts. Mm -hmm. And we are all working very aggressively towards that. And we, we have a number of projects, both at Mass Life Science Center, Mass Bio. They have a very tight collaboration. And we bring industry into this and, and as well as government through the Mass Life Science Center. So I think that uh, we're going to be able to fulfill those you know, uh, demand for the workforce. Um, we are actively working on biomanufacturing sites. We have one in Worcester. Uh, we are working on, you know, with academia, 
to train uh, professionals, you know, students for regulatory, for example, mm -hmm. or biomanufacturing. Um, so there's active, you know, curriculums being designed. And so the academia is at the table, too. Um, that's a real ex live example of what's happening now. Um, so, you know, that sort of is my experience with state of Massachusetts. But there's a, something that at the federal level has happened as well, and I was part of that. Um, it was the NSF and NIJ, the National Institute of Justice. They had, a, um, a, you know, a sort of a matching grant program mm -hmm. where academia, industry, the government will come together. And it was really focused on the advanced forensic science. And so uh, we were able to create, you know, sort of a program where there were five or six universities part of this program and many federal agencies like FBI, the DEA, Secret Service, um, U.S. R&D Missile Group, you know, they were all military. They were all part of this group. And so we created a sort of industrial board and everyone mm -hmm. had um, a board seat and I I chaired for, um, you know, one of the term, um, uh, that, that board. Mm -hmm. And what that allowed us to do is to really come up with ideas that our respective companies needed. And we provided that funds to university and NSF and IJ matched those funds. And then we had an option to license uh, or continue to jointly develop those, those, those ideas. This is another way to acquire the innovation by mm -hmm. seeding that innovation. And this is another example. But these are, again, you know, happening sort of in, you know, uh, they're sort of scattered. You know, there needs to be more cohesive sort of a strategy like we did in Massachusetts. Um, that needs to happen at the federal level as well. But, you know, listening to you, it almost sounds like we're on the verge of a major change of like how our economy works. I mean, all these jobs, all these new industries. I mean, this stuff back when I was in school didn't even exist, right? I right. mean. We've covered data science, biomanufacturing, all sorts of There's a whole new set of industries that are rapidly emerging. Absolutely. That are going to change the jobs in the futures. And, you know, if I was in college today, I would start thinking about some of this type of stuff. I mean, I give you an example of uh, we are our, our personalized diagnostics that will be at home. And mm -hmm. this is a like, high-powered, comprehensive platform. So it has a miniaturized mass spectrometry which, you know, typically in a you know, vacuum pump is the size of this room. Uh, and, and Our room's not that big, by the way, because no one can see it. But yes, keep going. <laughs> <laughs> but it, but it, is, it is big enough. Imagine that, that a machine be, be like this size where right. you have, you know. And, and, and so you have, uh, you know, a device costs, you know, 500 to 1,000 to $1 million. You need a very, ex, you know, skilled experts to mm -hmm. run uh, that instrument and, uh, you know, it's a, it's analysis for small molecules, for example, like mm -hmm. drug analysis or food analysis. Um, and, uh, you know, it's needed for the industry uh, and, um, you know, it's expensive. So a lot of the companies, you know, can't really afford it. So they outsource it. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, they send samples and it takes a time. Now, in clinical medicine, it's not really even used because it's not feasible. It's It's not cost effective. I mean, thousands of dollars per analysis, it will never be able to afford. No insurance company will pay and patient will not be able to sustain that out mm -hmm. of pocket. So what we are doing is, you know, miniaturizing that mass back. And then our second version, you know, we are doing 3D printing of mass back. And mm -hmm. if you tell anyone today, it, it, it like it's not possible. <laughs> You know, so you're talking from coming from $500,000 or million dollars down to, you know, $10,000, $20,000, maybe $25,000. Mm -hmm. It's a massive, massive 
you know, shift mm-hmm. in, in cost reduction, but more importantly, not losing that sensitivity and specificity, you know, value that you need for a clinical use, for example. So what our goal is that we want to personalize that care to be able to understand how you respond to a therapy. Mm-hmm. You know, that's just a one component of the device that 3D printed. But then there are sensors, you know, to do the DNA RNA analysis and immuno sort of the chemical chemistry and so forth. That was would have not been possible, uh, you know, even like five, six years ago. Mm-hmm. But it's more possible now because the 3D printing biomaterials have that technology have improved so much that we're able to actually do something like this. Yeah. So there's a core dependence of, of these t- technologies. Yeah. Well, I feel like my father when I say, you know, the world's the pace of change in the world just continues to accelerate. It's, it's, <laughs> it's mind blowing talking to you, you know. So, you know, we've covered a ton, Grant. This has been this has been a really interesting, really amazing. So thank you for that. I want to pivot a little bit, talk about your time as an entrepreneur. This is your first, second, third company, second company that you founded, right? What do you like about being an entrepreneur in this space? You know, uh, I mean, I like all parts of entrepreneurship, you know, from a concept you know, sort of an idea of back of the napkin all the way to really development of, of a product and commercialization of product. Um, but I specifically like really creating stuff. And I like that, you know, there are a lot of highs and lows. Mm-hmm. You know, most of the time I'm terrified and insecure. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I feel like the house is going to burn down. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and, and uh, but, but I think the, the, you know, satisfaction that you get from creating something that is going to change uh, and improve either whether that's a process or whether that's a, you know, lives of people. And in, in our case, we hope that we will, you know, change many lives mm-hmm. and improves and save lives. Um, and, uh, you know, so that whole process is very, very exciting. And, you know, as we discussed, there's just so many parts to this. Right. And it feels like Every time uh, you start something, you feel like you don't really know much. Mm-hmm. And and that's really is the best part of biotechnology field. Uh-huh. Um, you know, I spent half my career in the digital health side. And, well, first 25% of my, my career in the healthcare policy. Yep. And then, um, you know, subsequent sort of a 10 plus years in, in the healthcare digital health. You know, 20 plus years ago, we were using... Um, you know, advanced analytics today called AI, you know, and um, and uh, using big data mm-hmm. um, and and, uh, you know, so moving from the healthcare digital health side into biotechnology. Now it's over 10 years. Um, it feels like I still know nothing <laughs> uh, because the technologies are changing so fast and there's so many angles to this. Um, you know, it's a multidisciplinary. I yeah. mean, we have a team in our partnership with MIT. It, it, it's, it's, you know, there's a sub-sub-specialties of bio, biology, chemistry, you know, physics, mathematics, and, you know, uh, computational uh, technology, I mean, uh, expertise, and, and to, you know, software and hardware and biomaterials. And, you know, there's just such a, you know, cross-functional team. Um that it's just mind-boggling when you're in those meetings. You feel like literally you're in, in a sort of sci-fi world. And that is the exciting part is that learning every day something new um, that you – I think that this is this is a sector that 
really provides so much more so than any other sector. Maybe I'm just biased. But <laughs> <laughs> so then I'll give you my last question. You know, give me a little bit. You're a young entrepreneur starting a business. What advice would you give him or her? You know, one of the, I mean, given the macroeconomic world today. Right. I would say that one of the number one is, is really expanding your network. Mm -hmm. I can't say enough about that is, you know, when you're a young company, you're always tight with resources. You always uh, don't have enough money. You don't have enough, uh, you know, expertise and so forth. Um, expansion of that your network and really bringing those advisors and, you know, just even informal people, you know, once in a while you met for coffee and you got some feedback. And then partners. Uh, that, to me, is how you can get through the complexity of technologies and, you know, increase the possibility of success. Mm-hmm. Um, that, that I think, is one of the number one um, in that. You know, obviously, today, if you talk about, you know, making sure that you have uh, adequate funding, uh, because that's, uh, you know, biotechnology doesn't come cheap. <laughs> you know? Yeah, we don't cover that. Yeah. Yes. You know, I mean, just the, the expense of the laboratory, the consumable, the instruments, the expertise of, you know, scientists and, you know, going through the regulatory hurdle, it, it is just huge. Um, so um, having those partners and network to lean on and leveraging the ecosystem to the max, I think is going to be the key. Uh, that's really good advice, Pam. And thank you for taking the time to talk with us, coming all the way out to the uh, Framingham Podcast Studio here. I really appreciate it. Well, thank you so much. I, I, I enjoy this. And thank you to all of our listeners, as always, for joining us on Definitively Speaking, a Definitive Healthcare Podcast. Please join me next time for a conversation with Beth Holmes from Hint Health, a provider of direct primary care. Direct primary care has been all over the news recently, especially with Amazon's recent purchase of One Medical. Plus, Beth has a background as a healthcare insurance executive. So I think she and I can geek out and talk about our time working at insurance companies. I hope you'll join us. If you like what you've heard today, please remember to rate, review, and subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast. To learn more about how healthcare commercial intelligence can support your business, please follow us on Twitter at DefinitiveHC or visit us at DefinitiveHC.com. Until next time, take care and please stay healthy. <laughs>